Have you ever noticed how hard it is to actually get somebody's full attention? I mean, that we're so saturated with messages today, that we're so stuck in our own routines, that we're so obsessed with our gadgets and the things that we've got to do that we almost never give anybody our attention. Think of all the time, think of all the energy, think of all the resources and ingenuity that is going to go into something that happens tonight, into all of the effort for one 30-second spot at the Super Bowl. And every once in a while, they get your full attention, don't they? I mean, consider some of the great Super Bowl commercials. Do you remember this one with a little boy in a Darth Vader costume a couple years ago trying to move his dad's Volkswagen Passat? Or if you're old enough to remember Terry, the Tate office linebacker, the guy who would tackle people at the office if they forgot to refill the coffee pot. Or maybe you're old enough to remember the classic, Mean Joe Green and a little boy and how basically he slays a giant with a Coke and a smile. Every once in a while, we get our attention arrested and our imaginations captivated. And, you know, we just have to work really hard at it. I mean, politicians have to work really hard to capture the attention of their constituents. Teachers have to work really hard in order to try to capture the attention of their students. And even preachers have to work really hard to capture the imagination of the congregation. Something that I'm failing terribly in right now, I can already tell. (laughs) But you know, not all messages are created equal, right? Like there are some messages that are just kind of for buying something, and there are other messages that are critical. I mean, they're a message of salvation, a matter of life and death even. And so there was a woman by the name of Karen Wood who was a flight attendant for Southwest Airlines, and she got so tired of watching people like us file into an airplane, sit down in our seats, open up a gadget or a magazine, and there they are going through the pre-flight kind of safety announcement, and we could care less, right? Like we are totally tuned out. And so on this one particular occasion, Karen Wood grabbed the speaker for the PA, And she said this, if I could have your attention for a few moments, we sure would love to point out these safety features. In case you haven't been in an automobile since 1965, the proper way to fasten your seatbelt is to slide the flat end into the buckle. To unfasten, lift the buckle and it will magically release. As the song goes, there might be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only six ways to leave this aircraft. Two forward exit doors, two overwing removable window exits, and two rear exit doors. The location of each exit is clearly marked with signs overhead, as well as red and white disco lights along the floor of the aisle. Made some of you look. In the event of a sudden loss in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling. Stop screaming immediately. Grab the mask, pull it over your face. If you're traveling with a child, secure your mask before helping with theirs. If you're traveling with two small children, decide now which one you like more. (laughs) Whether at our destination is 70 degrees and broken clouds, but don't worry, we'll try to have those fixed by the time that we arrive. And remember that no one loves you or your money more than Southwest Airlines. And so instead of like the normal yawn, people clapped and cheered for a safety announcement. 
Well, I want to introduce you today to somebody who has a really difficult job of grabbing someone's attention. His name is Nathan, and he happens to be the best friend of King David. And if you will, if you've brought a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me. You can put it on your gadget if you want to. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're also going to put it up on the screens. But what you need to know is that this is the chapter that immediately follows Bathsheba Gate. And so this is a very significant moment in confrontation. This is a matter of life and death. And Nathan has got to get David's attention. And here's how he does it. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. There we go. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And he means something different today than it does back then. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Sometimes reading the scripture is kind of gnarly, isn't it? You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Let's pray together. You tell us in your word, O oh God, that everything that is hidden will one day be revealed. And you also tell us that there's no place that we can go to hide from your presence. And so arrest our attention in this moment, O oh God. Captivate our imaginations. And help us to see your life-saving message. For we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said. 
So we're in a series that's called Multiplication Tables, and in this series, we're contrasting the tables of the world from the tables of King Jesus. So we looked in that first week at the table of King Herod and the table of King Jesus and noticed how they were categorically different from one another. And that at Jesus' table, you had certain attributes, certain qualities that were present in the kinds of friendships, the kinds of community that got developed at table and fellowship with Jesus. These five attributes of trust and accountability and belonging and laughter and encouragement. This is what I believe we are all desperately hungry and what we all really long for in our relationships with one another. And so today we're going to look at the subject of accountability. Accountability is just a fancy word for being responsible for who you are and for what you've done. And you might be thinking to yourself, seriously, Super Bowl Sunday, what a great day of celebration. We're going to talk about accountability. We are. And let me tell you why. Because the tricky thing about sin is that it doesn't necessarily seem like sin when you're in the middle of it. So we're kind of clueless. David doesn't feel like a sinner when he's with Bathsheba. He feels like a man in love. David doesn't feel like a sinner when he sends Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, unnecessarily off to war so that he will die in battle so that David can have Bathsheba for himself. He feels like a king in control in that moment. We don't feel like sinners when we're greedy. We feel like consumers. We don't feel like sinners when we are abusing our freedoms. We feel like we are exercising our rights. When we retaliate against somebody, we don't feel like we're a sinner. We feel like we are dispensing justice in that moment or righteousness. The Bible says two things. A, the Bible says that King David um, is a man after God's own heart, but the Bible also says that the heart is deceitful above all things, that both of those things can actually be true at the same time. I love how a 20th century theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr puts it. He says this, no amount of evidence to the contrary seems to shake a man's grand opinion of himself. (laughs) Raise your hand if you know somebody that this applies to in this moment. (laughs) Keep your hand up if the person that you're thinking of right now is yourself. Well, We all struggle with sin, but it's language that we don't often use today. But no matter how you label it, the same reality is still going on. Social scientists don't like to talk about sin, but you can't deny the actual reality of sin being within us. So social science comes up with different labels. Let me give you one of the social science labels for the warp distortion that is sin in our lives. Social scientists, and I'll put a cartoon up here that illustrates this, refers to this as the self-serving bias. And what this means is that you and I have the incredible capacity to exaggerate our own abilities and triumphs and accolades. And when when things don't go our way, we have a tendency to blame all of that on our circumstances. And that the opposite is true in the way that we tend to look at the people around us. That when someone else is successful, we tend to say it's because of the circumstances and uh, when they're not successful, it's, we blame their character. Let me give you a brief example of this. Imagine you're in the aisle of a grocery store, and your kid or your grandkid is right there with you, and that child is behaving badly and kind of throwing a tantrum. In that instance, you're like, my child's behaving like a spoiled brat, and they're having a bad day. 
Now, let's assume that you're in the same aisle, but it's not your child that's actually struggling in that moment. It's someone else's child. What goes through your mind in that moment? Are you thinking that child's having a really hard day? No, what you're probably thinking is that's a really bad parent. They need to get a grip on what it means to actually be a parent. In other words, we don't hold ourselves to the same standard that we hold everybody else to. We kind of cheat in that regards in the way that we treat others. John Orberg talks about three particular studies that illustrate this. The first study that illustrates this comes from a study of, a comprehensive study of 829,000 high school students. And they asked high school students this simple question. They asked the question, are you above average or below average in your ability to get along with other people? Now, remember your math. If there's a mean, if there's an average, Categorically, there has to be 50% above average and 50% below average. Turn to the person next to you and try to guess how many, what percentage of high school students said that they were above average in their ability to get along with others. Turn to somebody next to you and try to answer that question. The answer, the answer, 100%. 100% of high school students say that they are above average in their ability to get along with others. Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, well, they're students, they're still young, maybe their brains, their prefrontal cortexes haven't fully developed yet, so we'll cut them some slack. So they did a follow-up study, and this time they tested faculty. And they asked faculty, okay, are you above average or below average as a teacher and researcher? 95% of faculty in the United States say that they're above average in their ability to teach and to do research. And you're like, okay, well, maybe like academic institutions are kind of, they're not the real world. It's the ivory tower. So maybe that's not right. So, so let's go to preachers. <laughs> preachers who preach on passages such as do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Consider yourself with sober judgment. But 90% of preachers say they're above average in their ability to preach. Let's put this cartoon up on the screen. This is, in other words, what we prefer. We prefer a reassuring lie than we do to the inconvenient truth. The Bible says that if we say that we have no sin... You can call it whatever you want to. But if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. And so you and I are incredibly susceptible to deception. And that we can't see ourselves the same way that others see them. We can't see ourselves with the light of reality. And that is why that God strategically put a friend in David's life a best friend, and his name was Nathan. And he's such a good friend that even though David's life has careened off the rails, he's still there. And not only that, consider for a moment, Nathan is taking his own life in, in jeopardy here because it was one single word and David could have Nathan wiped from the face of the earth. Think how brave it was for Nathan to walk into the court of the king to confront him. This is a matter of life and death, not just for David, not just for Nathan, but for the people of God. 
It's a life or death kind of moment. And he needs all of his ingenuity, all of his creativity. He needs everything at his disposal in order to try to get David's attention and to snap him out of it. And Nathan realizes one thing before he walks into the court of King David. And I imagine that this is just as true for you as it is for me today. And that's this. David can still recognize sin. He just can't see it in himself. He can still see it. He just can't see it within. And so Nathan tells a story. When I was 27 years old, um, my family moved to Summit, New Jersey. We were in the New York City area. And while we were there, um, I, I was really young in ministry, and there was a guy who just retired when I got there, and we became golfing buddies. His name was David Woodbury. And it wasn't but a couple of months into kind of our time and being there and being a friend with David. And what you need to know about David is what he did for a living. He negotiated union contracts for a living. I mean, he had this incredible tenacity, this incredible loyalty towards uh, the people around him. He just wouldn't let something go if he really believed it. We're in kind of some of the early holes of, of around uh, on this one particular day. And David goes, Rich, I got to talk to you about something. I'm like, Dave, what is that? And he's like, I don't know how to say this delicately, so I'll just say it. When are you going to stop trying to prove to us that you belong as our senior pastor? He's like, you're, you're a young guy and you don't trust the call. And the reality is you either trust the call of God or you don't. But you're working so hard in every meeting, in every sermon, in every interaction to prove to us that we didn't make a mistake in hiring such a young guy. Rich, you're exhausting me. <laughs> and then he went and hit a ball. If we hadn't been playing golf, I probably would have left. But I started doing some kind of soul searching based on what he said and the friendship that we had. And I knew he was right. That my insecurities and my doubts were getting in the way of being an effective pastor. That you can't be an effective pastor if you're trying to constantly prove to yourself and to others that you belong there. You have no idea how important this soul work, his tenacity and his kindness started to do surgery in me, how important this was. It was only a couple of months later that I walked through 9-11 with that New York City area church. And I can't imagine having not worked through those spiritual soul issues before being able to walk alongside them in a moment that truly was a matter of life and a matter of death. I couldn't see the sin in myself. And I needed someone else to point it out for me. And so I'm going to just ask you a simple question today. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have a person in your life who is more committed to you and the truth than they are about the feelings that you might have in one particular moment. 
Do you have someone who's completely honest with you? Someone who's transparent with you? Someone who'll talk to you about something even if it's really, really hard? Do you have someone who's, who doesn't see the relationship as being so frail or so fragile that they don't think that their job as your friend is to validate your feelings or to see a relationship as something that's devolved into something into kind of propping you up, that the goal of a friendship is to make you and I feel good about ourselves? Is that what a friendship is? A couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about transactional friendship or transactional relationship where you tend to use people instead of serving or loving them. And then last week we talked about shallow relationships where we talk about how we have this incredible tendency to spread ourselves too thin, to be a mile wide and an inch deep in the way that we relate to others. This week I want to talk to you about what people call therapeutic relationships where we really exist just to coddle one another and to really care more about somebody's feelings than we care about them. I'm going to put an image on the screen here that might, for many of you, kind of put a surge of emotions in you. Who is this individual? This is Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff swindled people out of $65 billion worth of assets. And in March of 2009, after he was caught and he was in jail, Bernie Madoff was asked in an interview, was there something that you wished would have been different? And do you know what he said? He said, I wish somebody would have caught me sooner. He needed a Nathan in his life. He needed someone who was more committed to the truth than they were the feelings of not offending. My mother used to say that she told me, she said, you know what, I never prayed that you wouldn't do anything wrong. You know what my mother prayed for me? She said, I prayed that when you did something wrong, you would always get caught. That's a prayer of accountability. And it's a good prayer. Do you have a Nathan in your life? I don't know if you felt this way about the end of today's passage in the same way that I do, even when I'm reading it for the multiple times. At the end of this passage, it's it's hard, it's raw, it's rough around the edges. And so in spite of the disobedience, in spite of the confrontation, in spite of the confession, in spite of the forgiveness, there were still consequences to David's actions. And tragically, his son dies as a result. As a Christian, I can't help but read this story with the foreshadowing of knowing another king, another son of David, that God will offer his own son so that we might experience the fullness of forgiveness and freedom. 
My friends, the cross is the only thing I know that will dispel and change a man's grand opinion of himself. And maybe you came today not just with a therapeutic notion of relationships with the people around you. Maybe you came today and you really consider your relationship with God as kind of a therapeutic relationship, that God exists to make you feel good about yourself. I'm here to tell you that once you understand the gospel, once you understand the cross, that is not what God came to do. He came to give you a life-saving message. And the cross shows us that he's not here to make us feel good about ourselves. He's here to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. The gospel is the only thing I know that can change self-serving biases into self-sacrificing ways of life. And my only hope is that God will put a Nathan in your life, a good friend, who will get your attention before it's too late. Let's pray. Our loving and heavenly Father, we confess to having a therapeutic view of you. We confess to viewing you as yet another relationship to prop up our small egos and that we live lives of trying to prove ourselves instead of trusting in your gracious promises and obeying your word. Lord, we don't want to hear it in this moment, but here's the honest truth. There's a little Bernie Madoff in all of us. There's a little Bernie Madoff in me, God. And the stakes may not seem so great, and the figures may seem smaller. The scheme may not be as elaborate, but the deception is the same. We can call it whatever we want, God, but you've called it sin. And so break us of our self-serving attributes. And help us to see the self-sacrificial love of the cross. It's the only thing that can rescue us.